Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And here he is, Michael Lombardi, his book, Gridiron Genius, a master's class in winning championships and building dynasties in the NFL, comes out uh, in less than a month. Pre-order that. I highly encourage you to. He's got a whole lot of knowledge built up over decades and decades in the NFL. He also, as I discovered today, Michael, uh, you have a fan account on Twitter, Lombardiology. <laughs> yeah. Which now yeah. I'm, I'm grateful to it because now my show prep has gotten so much easier. I'm just going to go look over Lombardiology and they've got a bunch of your quotes out there uh, every every week. Are you happy with this development? It's been great. I mean, this Brandon, I, I, uh, tremendous guy. I don't really, I'm, I've talked to him on the phone and, and we've exchanged emails and he's been kind enough to take some of the things I say and put it out there. And he's been a great, great help to me as well. So, you know, when you talk as much as I talk, sometimes you don't always write it down and you kind of can forget, but it's been fun. It's great. And I think it's, uh, it's a way for me to kind of uh, be able to share some of the thoughts with people that don't have to listen to my podcast or read my books or something like that. This will be like, uh, you know, the Viking Kings used to have poets that would go around and tell of the, the majesty and the greatness. This will be like your Viking poet. I, I would like that. I have not read much about Viking poets, but that sounds like a pretty good idea. I'm mostly uh, making that up from things that I might or might not have seen on the History Channel. I'm not sure if it's actually true. <laughs> well, look, if you believe it, it's true. That's all that matters. <laughs> uh, you were on the Rich Eisen Show, and you made the prediction. Or uh, I hate using the word prediction, uh, but right now you said you would pick the Texans versus the Packers in the Super Bowl. Obviously, anytime you choose anybody in the AFC other than the Patriots or possibly the Steelers, it creates a lot of waves. I'm wondering when you made that pick if you were thinking about the 2016 Texans-Patriots playoff game. You know, I, I, I like the Texans team. I always have. Now, last year, I think, you know, they lost up in New England in a, in a, in a barn burner, but a lot of their off-defensive players were hurt. They've always been a problem for the Patriots to handle defensively. I mean, Romeo does a great job. They understand what they need to do, and then they create some matchups with their front. When they put Whitney Marcellus over the center and, you know, they force your protections to have to go one way or the other because no one can handle his quickness over there, that becomes a real problem. And, oh, oh by the way, you still have to block Clowney, and, oh, by the way, you still got to block this guy named J.J. Watt. Those three blue-chip front seven players are tough to handle. So, for me, I, with their players coming back, healthy and then with Deshaun Watson who I loved coming out in the draft I loved everything he did last year for this team I love his character his leadership I I just think they have something unique there they have a great punter which controls field position look when you play the Patriots you know no one talks about this but the Super Bowl they lost to the Giants the punter of the Giants won the game for them. I mean, the Patriots never started a drive outside their own 24-yard line in that game. And they had to go. They had to play on long fields. Now, we don't talk about this on television because it's kind of boring. But playing on a long field, no matter how good your offense is, becomes difficult. And I think that's what the, Patriot, that's what the Patriots fear the most. And 
the Texans have sat with with Shane Leckler. And that 2016 playoff game was what I was thinking of because the Texans had Brock Osweiler as quarterback. They weren't they weren't as good as the Patriots, but for almost the first three quarters, they were giving Tom Brady a hard time. And I, I hate saying, hey, the recipe for beating Tom Brady is rushing with four, because that's a, that's a recipe for beating anybody in the NFL. Um, but they were able to do that without J.J. Watt. And that's where I am, too, is that, look, there are so many ifs with this Texans team right now. If J.J. Watt is healthy and looking like he used to, if Tyron Matthew looks like 2015. But it's, it's hard to ignore that. On paper, there are a lot of reasons they should be able to take care of that. And no doubt, and and I think this, look, the recipe for rushing any great quarterback is four. But what I think we forget, and we leave the sentence out, is we have to get into the paint. And this is something that drives me crazy. We don't talk about this at all. The paint is where quarterbacks hate you to be. And you being a former defensive lineman understand this. Those guys that rush around the corner, quarterbacks can step up. But what they can't handle is when they can't step up, when the pocket is tight on them. And when you play Peyton Manning or you play Tom Brady, the great quarterback, you're not going to beat them with coverage. You're going to beat them with rush. And the rush has to happen from inside. It has to be, and I believe this, you know, the defensive line coaches, they all have those arcs out there. Seth, you've seen them all, and they all put the quarterback at a certain spot, and they put these lines on the field. I say to me that's stupid. I would put a box. I would make it like the free throw lane in basketball, and I would coach every defensive lineman, especially the tackles, to get into the paint. And when you're in the paint, the quarterback can't step up. When you're in the paint, he, can't, he has to flick the ball. He can't drive the ball. And those are the things that affect great quarterbacks. It's one of the best things about being on the field during training camp, and I'm reminded of it every year, is because I never, I never really noticed this while I was playing, because I was always watching from the defensive perspective. But when you sit back there in at field level, you see what it looks like when the two defensive tackles have the pocket pressed and their hands in the air. It's amazing that anybody ever completes anything, and then you can see really like what a liability it is being six foot tall, and and how much you have to overcome to be a Drew Brees, and how smart you have to be able to to be able to throw over all of that. Yeah, no doubt, and I think that we lose sight of it. This, you know, look, those spin moves defensive linemen do—they they should save that for the beach. You know, those swims <laughs> and spins. You know, it's a waste of time. To me, I—I I, I think this is the biggest mistake we make in pro football. The, the the defensive coordinator should spend more time with the D line coach preparing the game rush, the plan for the pass rush, because that's the only way to really stop it based on the rules. The rules are too easy now. The defensive line coach and the, and the coordinator have to orchestrate the rush so that they understand it. And really the best rush against any quarterback is field goal rush. Just drive the guards back. Push them back. Make the pocket soft. You get on an edge and they can push you away and get you up the field, you're no good. The worst place to be in football, and I'm sure you've heard this from Coughlin because it's a Belichickian line, it's a Parcells line, is past the quarterback. The quarterback has yet in the history of the game turn around and run that way. Mm-hmm. He always goes that way. So when you're past the quarterback, it's now become a 10, 11 on 10 game. And you're worthless. And those ends that just run up the field and they think they're, you know, and the TV announcers say, well, he just missed a sack. No, he killed his team. He gave the quarterback a chance to step up and step out, and now we're dead. We were talking the other day, I think about Andy Reid, uh, my co-host and I were talking about him, and, and some of the clock management issues or perceived clock management issues. I'm curious about it from a GM's perspective, um, and also maybe as a GM who can explain things to fans, what what is different about 
clock management in game, like the the logistics of it, and having to make decisions with a play clock and with having to get people on and off the field that that perhaps people that play video games or people that watch football don't quite understand. Well, I think there's so many factors in it. To me, like Andy and Andy Reid still does this, and I don't understand why, but he calls timeout at 2:05 to go in the game when he needs the ball back. Mm-hmm. Like you can't do that. You can't do that, Seth. 205 to go in the game. You have just given me, as your opponent, the opportunity to run or pass. When you need the ball back, you have to eliminate one element of the offense, the pass. Okay, so if I call timeout at 207 and you try to throw the ball and it's incomplete, I gain a timeout. Let's just take, for example, the playoff game, the Atlanta Falcons versus the Philadelphia Eagles. It's one of the worst play-calling games I've ever seen at critical points, and we have yet to talk. I'm the only person talking about it in the offseason. Nobody mentions it. Poor Pete Carroll takes so much crap for running the ball in the first and goal at the one in Super Bowl 49. When we're in a goal-line defense, we have seven big defensive linemen he only has five offensive linemen. If Lynch would have run the ball there, he would have lost a yard. Okay, mm-hmm. The play before, Dante Hightower tackled Lynch with a bad shoulder with one arm and got him on the one-yard line. So I don't want to hear he's Superman. He's a great player, but the numbers favored us there. And Pete's taken so much crap for that unfairly. Now, let's go to the, let's go to the divisional game in Philadelphia. First and goal at the nine, a minute 12 to go in the game. You're the offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons. The Philadelphia Eagles have one timeout. Now, you know as a head coach or the coordinator, the coordinator probably doesn't, but the head coach knows they made a 60-some-yard field goal at the end of the half that cost, that cost the team three points. So this field goal kicker's got range. You also know that if you score too quickly, the Eagles have a chance to get into range and beat you. So now you've got a dilemma. You've got to make these calls based on how do I score and how do I take away time from the, from the, the Eagles. So what, do you, what should you do? You should run the ball on first and go with the nine, maybe gain a yard, maybe gain two, maybe gain three, maybe not gain any. But you start the clock. Now Philadelphia has to burn its final timeout. No problem. They take that timeout. What do the Falcons do? They throw a fade in the end zone. They eat three seconds and give the Eagles another timeout. Mm-hmm. Second down call. Okay, now if you would have run it on first down, now you run it again on second down, and you get that clock moving. And now you get that clock moving all the way down to a certain point, and you can call timeout when it's one second to go and leaves you two plays to win the game, and basically they don't have enough time to really beat you, nor a timeout. What do the Falcons do? They throw it again, incomplete. Now the Eagles have just, those odds have just shifted dramatically in favor of the Eagles here. Because even if they give up the field goal, even if they give it up, even whatever they do, you know, they give up the touchdown. It's not going to matter. They have enough time to come back, plus they have a timeout. That whole sequence, to me, was so bad, and yet we don't talk about it. And these are the kind of game situations that need to be addressed during a game and during a broadcast, and we're not getting any of them. So what's the conversation like with the head coach and say – it's going to vary from owner to owner. I know the conversation with Arthur Blank afterwards is going to be a whole lot different than, like, say, the conversation with Al Davis afterwards. What's the conversation with Al Davis after uh, something like that? 
Al Davis would have gone berserk. Al Davis might have fired the whole everybody. I mean, this is Al's pet peeve was game management. Put yourself at a chance to win the game. He taught it to Parcells. I mean, he's taught it to me. He's taught it to everybody who's come in contact with him. You know, he understood the importance of how to do it, and I think he would have demanded that you know it. And if you didn't know it, it was going to pay consequences. At other places, Seth, being perfectly honest, you almost can't even talk about it because you're then perceived as second-guessing. You're perceived as, as questioning the coaches which it's a little bit like a doctor-to-doctor relationship. Even though doctors make mistakes, you never hear another doctor talk about a mistake, right? Uh-huh. You never hear it. You know, all doctors, you know, well, you know, maybe he, you know, that's the same thing in the coach. You're not allowed to question it. You know, and I think it's really unfortunate. Look, I, I, I think you have to have, like, I can go into Belichick and we can have these kind of conversations, which made our relationship, I wasn't ch- second-guessing. As Art Modell used to tell me all the time, kid, I'm not second guessing, I'm first guessing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's one you of know, those things where, as a coach, I guess you you just accept that you're going to mess up clock management at times. It's just it's too you, hard. You, There's too many you things. Can't mess that, you can't mess that up after you've blown the Super Bowl. Right, right. You know, and that's you, the you, you, right. You can blame the Super Bowl. Look, I, I don't blame Kyle Shanahan for the Super Bowl. I don't. Okay, Kyle Shanahan's job as the offense coordinator of the Atlanta Falcons was to get first downs and get points. Dan Quinn's job as the, as the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons is to manage the game. Yeah. And if he doesn't get on the headset and say, Kyle, I want runs here, I want three runs here, okay, then he's not doing his job. So we can blame Kyle for it. Like, Kyle's job isn't to do that. Kyle's job is to get first downs and score points. And if you don't have a head coach who understands how to manage this game, you know, or what we're going to do and how you play it, like, I, I think, for example, this is one of my big pet peeves. I wrote about this in the book. Is we talk about turnovers like, okay, quarterback throws an interception. Sam Darnold's interception last week against the, the Redskins, people were told, well, he threw a bad pass. It was fourth down. Okay, some interceptions and aren't turnovers. Okay, they're just change of possessions. Mm-hmm. Missed field goals outside of 40-yard lines are turnovers. Because here's how you have to look at this. If I have the ball first, if I have the ball fourth and one, at my opponent's 40-yard line, that's a 57-yard field goal, okay? Do I attempt that, which probably with my kicker might be, let's say it's a 55% chance of making it. What are my odds of going for it on fourth and one? Are they better than 55? Are they the same as 55? Then I go for it. But those odds have to keep going the same because if I miss this kick, the ball is moving seven yards from the line of scrimmage, and they're getting the ball. That's a turnover in my book. When you looked at the first half stats of the Super Bowl, the Eagles had, had the Eagles, the Patriots are sitting there. You know, they, they missed a field goal and missed a turn and missed an extra and missed an extra point and missed a field goal. That they, that's one turnover right there. That's the game that yeah. has to add into it. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Dan Quinn too because I'm with you. I think like his job is to have he's he's got a leash on Kyle Shanahan. That's your job is you're the owner of that dog. You got to have a leash on him. You got to do it. The other question I have about Dan Quinn is this. He initially hired Richard Smith as his defensive coordinator, and that was a shocker to me that a defensive-minded coach like Dan Quinn would hire a guy like Richard Smith, who, like, frankly, when he was here in Houston, flat out didn't know what he was doing. And then he tries to replace Kyle Shanahan with Steve Sarkeesian, who's a bright enough guy, but just had had a cup of coffee in the NFL. And I just, I don't know what's going on with Dan Quinn and his hiring decisions. A lot of it are based on his friendships. I mean, look, Steve Sarkeesian, what worked for Pete Carroll at, at USC, uh, you know, he's best friends. He's part of that. Pete, he's part of Pete's group, and 
and Pete and Dan are, are, are friends, and so they all come together. And so, you know, look, there's no similarities between what Kyle Shanahan did in, in Atlanta and what Steve Sarkeesian doing. Steve Sarkeesian's a West Coast day one install type of guy. He's mm-hmm. going to run smash seven curl. He's going to run flanker drive. He's going to run all the basic staples of the West Coast. That's not really what Kyle does. Kyle's a, a huge play-action pass guy down the field. You know, one of the things about Kyle is he makes the game so much easier on the quarterback. Look at Matt Ryan's numbers. Look, Matt Ryan's a great player. He had a career year, a career year plus with Kyle Shanahan. He didn't have that with Steve Sarkeesian. Hey, Michael, really appreciate it. Good stuff all the time. I've got to ask you your Jumbo Elliott story next time we have you on. Uh, (laughs) The book, Gridiron Genius, A Master's Class in Winning Championships and Building Dynasties in the NFL, comes out in just about three weeks. Go ahead and pre-order it right now. You're going to love it. You're going to reread it. Thanks a lot, Michael. Ah, Sean Pendergast off from that. You're back from Chicago. You saw Hard Knocks. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming the, the star of the show in your mind was offensive line coach Bob Wiley. Yeah. I hate that it took us three episodes to get to know him. He I, Were they teasing us? Because they showed they him in show meetings. Him. And you're like, is that, guy, is that guy coach? What is that guy? What yeah. is that thing? Yeah. Um, he's amazing. Yeah. He is, he's got, he checks all the boxes for an amazing TV character for me. His mustache, his salty 1940s demeanor, his ability to not only carry that belly around with him, but make it do things. <laughs> On those tiny stick legs. Yeah. You're right. The way Yeah, like from behind, he doesn't look, he doesn't look like a gigantic obese person, but no. then it's like he's got like, it's like he's got, uh, like some gigantic spherical spherical sculpture tucked underneath his shirt like a keg it's like if he was santa claus but santa claus was skinny but he carries a sack of toys (laughs) in his belly right that's exactly it's like santa trying to sneak his toys around right and uh, i I guess the notable speech is when he's complaining about stretching and like immediately it triggered me because i'm so you're so worn out of guys who aren't in shape telling you about physical conditioning when you're a football player like going back to your pop warner days when you've got some overweight dude smoking a cigar yelling at you that was always my thing with mark mangino and charlie weiss too yeah these two coaches who would their reputations are discipline yeah mangino brought a new style of discipline to kansas (laughs) and that's what made them 11 and 0 or whatever they were that year and they won the orange bowl like he brought discipline. i'm like discipline like look at it like the guy eats like 10 meals a day and none of it's good how about leading from the front buddy (laughs) yeah exactly speaking of leading in the front yeah his big speech is about how, hey, they stormed the beaches at Normandy. They won World War II, and all they did was calisthenics. All they did was push-ups and jumping jacks and everything. Right. And you're sitting there. That was one of those arguments where you hear it, and at first you're like, ah, there's something wrong with that argument, but I can't quite place my finger on it. It's dumb, but it makes a little bit of sense in the moment. And then you realize, oh, wait, yeah, like 
None of those heroes that stormed Normandy Beach could have passed block J.J. Watt. No. Like, I'm sorry to say it, no. but uh, they're just two separate things. Right. Storming Normandy Beach, and or storming the beaches in Normandy, right. and, and pass blocking a, a current NFL defensive player, not the same thing. I would have been like, well, are they going to let me use a gun? Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> so, you know, like, if you let me use a gun... To uh to to shoot down uh, JJ Watt I'll like gladly, big game I'll gladly forsake my bench press and my and my stretching bands if <laughs> right. you let me shoot him with an M16. <laughs> That's exactly if you let me have an assault rifle <laughs> like, or just even a hatchet. Yeah, give me a, can we can we bring just a some, hatchet some weaponry, a mace or something like that. My my theory, but it's funny you bring that up about like crossover type of things. You go, okay, is this analogy working? Because Lou Holtz reputedly used to bring up like when a guy would have a pulled hamstring. Yeah. He would be like, listen, how could you have a pulled hamstring? I watched a greyhound run the other day, and then you see these dogs run around. The dog never pulls a hamstring, <laughs> Lee Becton. How can, you, how can you pull a hamstring? Lou Holtz, I'm almost like, they they built the White House, and they didn't even have to pay anybody to do it. <laughs> right. oh, Lou, those, hey, were, those were slaves, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, okay. You're 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 delving into that territory no, again, dude, Lou. Yeah, yeah. He did. He had an unfor- He had a bad day one time yeah. comparing a, a touting Hitler's leadership. Yeah. Uh, Which, well, uh, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, hard right turn here. Um, my theory on on um, on uh, Wiley is that when I see him and I find out he's the offensive line coach. And this, I feel this way about anybody that looks like that. Yeah, is that they must be amazing at their jobs, right? Like they, like if he, because he's completely unappealing to look at. He's kind of a joke. Like he must be an incredible coach Bob because Kierling. he doesn't present himself well yeah, at all. Yeah, no, exactly. Or he's just hilarious, right? You yeah, know, like, like Hugh Jackson him around. keeps him around as his gesture. <laughs> right. Bob Tierlink was a defensive line coach who was with the. He was with the Broncos, then he was with the Colts for a long time, mm-hmm. and he was really, really good. And he had a hard time moving around. He was yeah. a big dude. Like you would see him sitting in exactly that same Bob Wiley, like a perch almost. Yeah, you know Bob Wiley sitting on the sitting on the on, practice cameras yeah, there on yeah, the yeah. Um, on the lift. Yep. and he's just kind of you have to perch yourself a certain way to yeah. let the belly sag down yeah. between your legs. God, that's depressing. Like he was, and he was really, really good at what yeah. he did. Um, let me ask you this. Who is the more engaging Hard Knocks personality, mm. Devin Kajust or Charles James from the Houston Texans a few Ooh. years back? Um, I'm starting to like Kajust a lot. Kajust, there, and I'm, I'm having to remember back to how they told Charles James's story because J- James was, I know, it was an underdog story. Right. And I know we saw Rick Smith and, and Bill O'Brien debating over him and Jamal Roll. Um, it was. Remember how I think? I think the first time you saw Charles James was when. He was tearing into another young defensive back. Oh, it was Corey Moore. It was Corey Moore. It That's was Corey right. Moore about how you got to yeah. get right because people's jobs are at stake and all. Yeah, they're of that. gonna no. You got they're gonna cut our ass. Yeah, yeah. No, that was cool. I, Devin Kajust, I think, is an easier one for me to get behind because there's a human interest story behind it. With it, they injected his dad into the story, mm-hmm. and I like that. You know, I, I and the dad's had all kinds of health problems. Um, Kajust seems to be very well liked by his teammates. I'm not saying James wasn't. I'm probably more into the Kajust story just because of the we've gotten to know more of his backstory and we've gotten to know his family. Whereas James, we found out he likes to play Madden and yeah. he had the funny socks yeah. and he was an underdog and he was undersized. Um, so could you, they're both great heart. They're, they're both your classic hard knock stories, but I'd probably say could you. The one thing I noticed too, on a pure football side of things was 
Devin Kajus was flagged for an offensive pass interference, and he didn't know why. Yeah, it was because they're they're being strict with it this year. So on screens, especially, they're not just going to let guys go downfield and start blocking before the ball is caught. Which yeah. is not like as a defensive player, I've been watching these last couple of years, and it's crazy what they've been letting guys get away with. Like offensive linemen three, four yards downfield on yeah. some screens, and it's not getting called. That's one of the things they get away with in college that makes the college game difference mm-hmm. is that they're oh yeah they're allowed one extra yard to they be downfield and then they don't enforce it either. So it's just it's really unfair. Yeah, yeah. It's the other thing about Kajust is he has a man bun, and the fact yeah. that I like him even more than Charles James, and he has a man bun, I think talk, speaks to the strength of his story. There's something about Kajust where I didn't want to like him at all, right? At first, right. right? And you know they've done studies on this in psychology. If you have to. People who earn other people's respect and admiration end up being even more respected and admired. Yeah. So if somebody, if you if you don't like somebody at first and then they grow on you, you tend to even elevate them above and beyond people who make a strong first impression. Wrestling promoters would agree with you on that. Oh, Here's really? Why, yeah. Like a lot of times when they put a new character out there and they're trying to get him over as a good guy, but the crowd is shitting all over him because they're just, they feel like he's being force fed. Yeah. They'll turn him heel they'll turn him bad guy and then when he comes back around eventually and turns back to being a baby face uh-huh. it's an even bigger reaction because people you're right it's there's a weird phenomenon that the either the 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 admiration or the friendship or how much you like somebody there's almost like a rubber band or a boomerang effect yeah. where if you hated that person to begin with, the fact that they ne- they've now arrived at a place where you like them, you like them even more. It's all, I wonder if it's almost that they, they create that emotional response in you and it's negative at first, but it like excites your nervous system <laughs> yeah, in a bad way and you just you turn that into a positive right. and it's even more stuff wrapped it, it, up Like in your, it. Your, your feelings about somebody are almost like the absolute value. You know what I mean? Like I was so negative on this guy, but yeah. now I'm the same amount of positive about this guy. But that's the, the classic example of that in the wrestling world was The Rock. When they introduced The Rock, they made him like this happy-go-lucky babyface guy. Yeah. And the crowd was chanting, Rocky sucks and die, Rocky die. So they turned him heel. And then when they turned him when they turned him back around, now he makes uh, $15 million a movie. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. Alex, you can mark this right here just so I can edit it out later. But yeah, you can do whatever you got to do. We're just... Uh, is anybody coming in to record anything? No, no, no. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, you're good. No, you're good, bud. Um, let's see. So, so we're talking about Kajust. That's right. I just compared Kajust to The Rock. I'll just switch. I'll just transition <laughs> yeah. into uh, three, two, one. One guy that I'm guessing we're not going to see again, but that was there, uh, a guy I like a lot, is Brad Paisley. Brad Paisley, the country singer, is yeah. out there at practice. And a couple things. One is I, I felt like there were a lot of awkward moments with Brad Paisley, and I didn't want to feel awkward about it. I really I like Brad Paisley. He's not in person, maybe the most engaging, like confident guy. He doesn't have a lot of bullshit. Yeah, he did. You know, like his speech was the, his. Like I, I loved how th- this is. This is where you know, like Hugh Jackson is probably not long for this world, or he's just too nice for everybody. Is he was propping up Brad Paisley about his uh, motivational speech to the team, which was like 15 seconds long, and right. like you or I could have walked up there, like I've j- just always been a really big fan and. And go get him, guys. Go out and win it for 12-year-old Brad Paisley. <laughs> right, exactly. And what, what did Hugh Jackson say? I think it was Hugh Jackson. I, I may he be, probably, no. I, I think I, somebody said, like, hey, good motivational, <laughs> you know, real motivational speech It's hard. I wonder if Brad Paisley knew beforehand that they were going to do, do that. that. That's yeah. a big, man, being asked to speak to a sports team. Yeah. 
a sports team or a junior high assembly, like impromptu is hard because you just never know how they're going to receive you. There's part of me that feels like though Brad Paisley, Paisley is a big enough star to where he should be ready for that kind of thing. Yeah. Like the guy gets out there and and plays music in front of 100,000 people, and that's his comfort zone. That's what he does. But I was really disappointed in his motivational speech. Talking to a team after practice is hard. For one, because they're a bunch of huge guys, obviously. Two, they're tired um, and sometimes grumpy. But then three, like you go into that football mode as a player where somebody's up there talking – you're more concerned with keeping your eyes up and looking like you're paying attention than actually yeah. like laughing at a joke or giving a warm response or something like I, that. Yeah, that's a good point, and, and and you've been there before, so you know that. I I also feel like maybe at that point, if you're somebody who's getting up in front of a team, unless you're like Ric Flair and they all just think you're the, the cat's meow and you can just get up there and woo for like five minutes yeah. and do your thing and strut around and... If you're up there, like to give a speech, I almost feel like you've got to have like some 90 second version of your story of struggle, like to to like briefly inspire them. Right, you know? right. I, I like, and Brad Paisley may have a story like that. I have no idea. I don't know if, enough about his backstory. But he's getting up there and he's thinking, okay, oh, Al Pacino and the three inches in front <laughs> yes. of your face, and yeah. oh man, all these other great speeches yeah. throughout time. What do I down say? His leg. The the pressure is a little too much. Yeah. I like Brad Paisley a lot. I don't want to feel this way about him, but I felt like there were awkward moments, like with him and Baker. Mayfield in the RV. Uh, okay, the, that was yeah, that was a little awkward. Um, but that you know what? Like I feel like that's pretty indicative though of of conversations that people have with celebrities, even though they're both celebrities. Like that's it's like it's hard to break the ice sometimes when right. you're having a conversation like what that. What are you talking about? Yeah, like so, two people from two different worlds. And yeah. like how much do they? Uh, Brad Paisley's claiming to be a big, huge uh, Cleveland Browns fan, but he doesn't seem to know a lot of the guys. On the team. <laughs> right, I love that. Like, what's your name? And it was like Joel Batonio or yeah, somebody. It was Batonio. It was like, like one of their like main guys on the <laughs> offensive line. That would be like if you were a big fan of the Texans, you would know like who like their highly paid starting offensive lineman would be. Right. Yeah. My other thing about Paisley, the moment that I loved among the many awkward moments was when uh, John Dorsey was standing next to him and Dorsey just cannot resist being hard OGM no. guy. Like all Brad Paisley says is he reminds me of Brett Favre a little bit. <laughs> he's like, right? like you gotta like, earn that kind of respect. Yeah. Like, settle Dorsey, down, man. Dorsey can't just politely be like, oh yeah, I see what you're saying. Because of course... In terms of physical attributes and everything, they're they're a lot different. They're not quite the oh, same guy. Oh yeah, Favre guys. was a big dude. Yeah, I shouldn't say a lot different, but you know what I mean. They're, yeah, that's not the comp- comparison you would make. Other than that, kind of that swashbuckling mentality. Yeah, stylistically, yeah. they're similar. You know, Baker and, runs around and he's got that gunslinger thing going. And I'm glad he said that because right after, right before he had said that, I think was when Baker Mayfield's talking to one of the ball boys or one of the injured guys or something. And I thought to myself, Baker Mayfield has that quality of always looking and seeming a little bit hungover. Like, I don't know if he is, but he just always seems a little bit hungover, which I like as a as a dude. I don't know if he actually is a little bit hungover or not. He may, yeah, you, yeah, it's, you never know. I The thing I like about Baker Mayfield, and I know the scene you were talking about, he... He does seem to. This is where he's come from. The, the first episode of the season, I was like, not uh, when he sang "Country Roads, Take Me Home" in front of the team. I'm like, eh, okay. But the one thing I notice about Baker, maybe he knows the cameras are on, and if so, maybe it's maybe it even backs up my point. But he always seems to have a little something to say to everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel like as a quarterback, you know, the position on the team, like he he feels like somebody that like within a few months. 
everybody in that building is going to be, oh, yeah, I love Baker. Baker. Baker seems like a guy who's nice to the receptionist. Right. He doesn't seem snooty at all. He doesn't seem full of himself. Yeah. He's got like that appropriate amount of swagger I feel but like, without being cocky about it. Right. I, I feel like that, like if we were to get the Browns to tell us their entire evaluation of Baker Mayfield, yeah. my guess is, especially if you're going to use a number one overall pick on a quarterback, is that they talk to everybody, including like, the equipment guy at Oklahoma, the the woman who sits at the front desk at the football office, and my guess is everybody loved Baker mm-hmm. Mayfield. He that that's what he's that's how he comes across to me. In addition to being pretty good at football so far this preseason, he comes across to me as a guy who who can engage anybody. And I like the scrappiness of him, just his story. Yeah. His scouts and executives, maybe they put too much into a guy's backstory. Yeah. But his backstory is one of a guy that like understands that you got to scrap and you got to struggle to make it. Yeah. You know, you just you, you keep having to prove yourself over and over again. Carl Nassib. Uh, Carl Nassib, <laughs> who's had a couple of pretty angry tirades about the superiority of stock investments and compound interest. I'm getting a little bit nervous for Carl Nassib only because I recognize a little bit of myself in him, which is whenever anybody challenges him on his claim of 10% annual returns in the stock market, right. he gets really angry. He cites the numbers, which, again, this is a little bit pet peeve of mine. He brings up that the stock market since, like, 1930-something, basically post-depression. Right. Everybody always cites post-depression, post-great crash has been 9.4%. A couple, two things. One, if you're going to cite the power of compound interest and the importance of small numbers, then you can't just gloss over the difference between 9.5% and 10%. Right. Two is this. I've caught him twice saying it. He's saying 10% every year, 10% every year. Carl Nassib's only been investing in the stock market for a couple years now. Right. Things have been pretty damn good. He's bragging about his 22%. Factually, he's correct. Let's, let's hit the rewind button to a young Seth Payne back in 1998 when I thought I was the cock of the walk and I had a big old chunk of money in, in Vanguard. And then the first tech bubble hits. Yeah. And you learn a few lessons. And then, okay, I get more diversified. But look, I got a bunch of real estate yeah. in Florida. Yeah. And then the crash in 2008 yeah. hits. And you learn, yeah, over time, 10% is great and everything, but you can't anticipate, <clears throat> you have to You have to understand what it's like when you wake up one day and you see that your 401k is 40% of what it used to be. <laughs> and that, like, don't be so I, cocky uh, about getting your aggressive 10% return all the time. My stomach hurts just hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it rebounded, you know, yeah, like if yeah. you stay in it, if you stay in it and you do all the right things yeah. and you just are not going to touch that money yeah. for, for however many years. But he's also got to understand, too, he likes doing that little exercise of doubling your money every seven years. Well, once you get up to 50 years old or so, you got to start backing off on that a little bit. You yeah. can't be going after your Because you're going to have big games. swings. Yeah. yeah. You have big swings. Um, he also did not like uh, Todd Haley's comments about his name last right. week. He, he clearly watched the episode last week. He watched week. the episode. Well, he heard about it from his grandma. Oh, is that his what it was? His grandma wasn't happy okay. about how much he was swearing. And then he made the same point we did, which is, like, how is a guy named Todd criticizing Carl for being a common name? I like that he was going after Haley in practice, like, right to his face. Yeah. I like that. Hey, Toad. And it seems like... Good one. It seems like Haley, if you're going to be that kind of coach that thinks you can, like, tease and be one of the guys, it's really important that you be able to take it back also. Like, get to... You got to be able to dish and receive. Yeah. So it seems like Haley's like that. Of the two guys, Haley and Greg Williams, they're both a holes, 
But I feel like Haley's a reasonable a-hole. Yeah. Where Greg Williams just seems like he's trying so hard to present himself as General Patton or something. I, I, I've come around to your thinking on Williams being like just a complete, like a complete phony tough guy. When he was standing there, when he was standing there in front of the in front of the room, and he's just yelling at the screen. Yeah. Like he's yelling at the screen. Obviously, sending the message to everybody standing behind him. He's looking at the screen. All the players are sitting in the amphitheater behind him. And the thing I typed down on my notes was, "How long till does it take till you tune out on a guy like oh, this? Oh yeah, who's real. like that all the time? Yeah, and it it sucks. Like when he yells at you personally, it still sucks. But in terms of like any motivational ability, it fades really quickly. Richard Smith, who now I'm going to say two negative things about on this podcast because I talked to Michael Lombardi earlier and I I questioned how he was ever hired in Atlanta to begin with. Yeah. That's a whole other tangent. I don't know how Dan Quinn, a defensive-minded coach, hires Richard Smith, who, when he was here in Houston, was just completely clueless and lost, as were the defensive backs. Like must- the, de- the defensive backs here didn't have a clue what yeah. they were supposed to be doing from week to week because the defenses were so crazy. It wasn't their fault. It was just the defenses were so crazy. He must interview well. I guess so. No, you know what he does? And this is what happens with hard asses like that. They sit down with a head coach or they sit down with an owner, the guys that get head coaching jobs, and they give that act. Yeah. They give that shtick, and people buy it hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. Because they're thinking, like, oh, this guy's like Vince Lombardi. Yeah, this is what we need. Right. A bunch of yelling and stuff. That's toughness and discipline. Right. So the misconceptions of those owners and those coaches lead to hires like Richard Smith and and Greg Williams, and maybe he'll slip in a few dollars for a torn ACL or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's I'm been going on forever. Uh, Moose, Moose the dog, I think, was probably the other <laughs> star. Yeah, uh, he was good. I. How do we feel about dogs around the office? It's, I'm glad you brought that up, because I wonder how many people in the that office are allergic to dogs. Or or just feel like there should be a separation between, you know, church and state. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, dog, a dog's place... This is, this is a place of business. Or they might not like dogs in general. Right. And right. just for whatever reason, yeah, there might be a lot of people that don't like having a dog there. I mean, he's a cute dog, but yeah. I'm thinking like he's there in the GM's office or wherever just eating out of that circular bowl that he was eating out of. I'm like, I'm kind wonder. of, a, I'm kind of, a, I like the dog. I liked him. And I love dogs. We have a dog. I love our dog. I'm kind of a, this is a place of business guy though. And I wonder too, okay, it's one thing if it's some organization that's got a proud and storied history, yeah. but this dog, it's really sad if you start to think about how, I don't know, some guy like four GMs ago might've had this dog and like left him there after he got the hook. <laughs> and then just how many, how many people keep rolling through this office that keep this dog. I don't oh. know if he's an off, genuinely an office dog or somebody that works there and brings the dog. Yeah, the he's, he might be like the longest tenured employee in the Browns organization. He's, <laughs> he, he's not bad. I would think that an office dog who's around all the office Christmas parties or birthday parties and everything would be yeah. heftier than he is. He's yeah. a little hefty, but he's not in bad shape. Yeah, no, he's a cute dog. He's a cute dog. I'm just, as I was watching it, I'm going, ah. I'm not a I'm not a dog in the workplace guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh anybody else? Probably kind of a downer. From uh from that episode? Yeah. Um Brogan Roback's girlfriend is smoking hot. Mm-hmm. Is that the first time we got to look she's, at her? I think it is, and she seems like a sweetheart. She, she seems does. like she genuinely look it's not like she fell in love with him because he was some big-time college quarterback yeah. or something. Where'd he go? Some Mac school? Yeah, yeah. I forget exactly where Eastern Illinois, Illinois or I don't know. Yeah, he's a he's a practice squad guy probably. And I had forgotten 
Um, but they highlighted in here that he's an Ohio kid. Yeah. So it's a big deal for him that that he's got all these uh, that he's doing this in Cleveland. Dude, Dez. Yeah. We haven't talked about Dez. Oh, Dez Bryant. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. Just walking in, hugging everybody, and then and yeah, at first you're thinking, how does Dez Bryant know all these people? And then you realize, like, oh no, he's just hugging everybody. Yeah. In the facility. He knows the cameras are on. Yeah. Like I feel like that's that's the one thing about Hard Knocks with a guy like that is I, I feel like Dez Dez knows the deal. Like Dez knows. Hard Knocks is there. The cameras are following him. He's he is in a way, Seth. I think <laughs> this is going to sound weird. You know when guys know they're not going to make the team, but they go out there in the third and fourth preseason game because they want to quote unquote quote unquote put film out there for other teams. Right. I felt like Dez was putting behind the scenes film out there for other teams. So people can see him, hey, I'm gregarious, I'm outgoing, I'm positive. Guys yeah. love me, guys respect me. Yeah. You know, look at I'm I'm looking for a team that's I'm looking for realness is what he said. That's what that's that's how I got my first job by the way when I interviewed what, Sean, what are you looking for in a career? I'm looking for realness. Yeah. <laughs> like, just being able to sit here and talk to somebody and have it be real. Right. Like, I never felt that I'm like, dude, take your headphones off, man. His headphones <laughs> on around his neck the whole time. But I, I that's how I felt is like, you know what, Dez isn't even campaigning for a job with the Browns right now because the rap on Dez was, yeah, I mean, he's lost a step as a player. We know what that is. But the reason – they guys lose a step as a player and get signed. Yeah. You know, the reason why nobody wants to take a chance on him, and I know the Ravens offered him a deal, but everybody else seems to be kind of backing away. I feel like has to do with how toxic it feels like he is behind the scenes. And so that's four minutes worth of film where people looked at him and said – you know, maybe they came away with a more favorable impression of Des Bryant. Do we know for sure that the Browns even paid for his ticket up there? I, I'm not clear on whether. I just Des assume just, they did. I, I almost got the feeling like, man, maybe they paid for it, but this is like mostly directed by Des. It feels like Des is saying all those things that you just said to himself, and I'm going to go up there and I'm going to put my foot forward, and all these people are going to see this. I did that when I was a free agent one year. Um, I was coming off an injury, a real bad injury, so it, it really hurt my free agency value. But I knew there was some interest, and I've been talking to teams. Um, but I didn't actually have a visit lined up on the first day. I was supposed to go see the Jets in, like, three days. So I went ahead and called them and said, hey, uh, my schedule's actually a lot better if I can just be up there on the first day. Is that cool with you guys? Yeah. And, and the only reason I did that, like, I wanted to be back here with the Texans. I wanted to push the issue. Yeah. So I was like immediately that morning, I called, I talked to, uh, I think I talked to John and Lance on Sports Radio 610 in the morning. <laughs> that morning, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I loved my time here. I'm headed off to meet with Herm Edwards and the Jets now. And then by like 3 p.m. that afternoon, I had to deal with the Texans. Oh. I, was up, I was up getting my, uh, my x rays and MRIs done up in New York, and my agents, I'd be like getting an x ray. Couldn't have any cell phone service, you know. I would duck out into the hallway between x-rays, and my agent would be like, just hold tight, I think we got a deal. Then I'd go back into the x-ray for like 20 minutes with no clue of what was going on. Oh, wow. Then I'd come back out, and he'd be like, all right, this is all we have to do. we got to take care of one more thing. And then I'd go back in. And then finally, we're, we're on our way to the hotel where I was going to drop my stuff off and then go out to eat with Herm Edwards. And my agent calls me. He was like, all right, we got a deal. Tell the driver to turn you around take you back to the airport. And I'm like, so you didn't get to have dinner with Herm Edwards? No, I didn't. I left him like at the altar, basically. Wow. I had to tell this poor intern that was driving me, "Hey, man, you got to uh, you got to turn around. 
And he's like, no uh, kidding. He's like, can I pull over and call them and ask if that's okay? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, do what you got to do. But I'm only like, under strict instructions that I gotta. I'm not to go meet the coaches. Wow. Yeah, because it would have been tampering at that point. Well, I it guess was, there was nothing official. Yeah. But I think my agent, for the sake of not you know, disrespecting you, anything or screwing Yeah, I got you. Up. I got you. Like, he didn't want me to all of a sudden be in a room with Herm Edwards and Herm's trying to get me to change my mind. Give it, and Herm might have been able to. If, if I don't know if Herm could coach, but Herm, I'm guessing, especially back in the day, I don't know if he can now at Arizona State, but I'm guessing Herm could be a hell of a salesman when he got in front of you. Yeah, I don't know if he's even vaguely aware of the notion of what he's supposed to be doing. Oh, Arizona no, State. no, it's amazing. Like, Why haven't there been more reports of him since... Like, we heard about what a debacle it was when he first got the job, and then we haven't heard from him in, like, three months. Well, i got to look into this. Well, because there hasn't been a game played yet, yeah. A, and B, he, I think people were expecting his first recruiting class to probably be pretty poor since yeah. he was that, – that's usually the case. You know, the recruiting, it's usually year two where they start to judge you on how you're doing. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe it's working. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the other thing. Like That's maybe, true. You know, like, it's college football. Like, it's, there's a lot of randomness built into it. Oh, and college kids would love his message, like hook, line, and sinker. He's yeah. in there telling them how hard they have to work and how great they're going to be and everything. And it might, yeah, that that part of it might work. I think he, I think the face-to-face stuff with Herm is, he's probably pretty good at it. I just don't know, does he have the energy to want to get out there on the recruiting trail? Yeah. He seems like he's ready to delegate everything to everybody else and just be a figurehead on the sidelines. Which works when you're like uh, Bobby Bowden or a Joe Paterno or some of these other guys that are figureheads. Yeah. But then you've got this whole organization in place and you're just you're being the face of the organization while everybody else is doing the work. He does not have that in no. place. No, is there part of you that's a little bummed you never got to have dinner with Herm Edwards? There is a little bit, yeah. <laughs> just for the, even for the networking sake, it yeah. would have been nice. And then I felt rude. I think I called and left him a message. I didn't get a hold of him or anything. But I always wonder to this day if he remembers it at all. If he thinks negatively of me. God, like if I'm, see now I want Arizona State to make the Texas Bowl somehow. So we can go. I know it's SEC versus Big Twelve, but yeah. sometimes you know the conferences can't fill up all their spots. Yeah, so they so he has to come on Mad Radio and you can ask him about the. Or I'll, maybe I'll take him out to that dinner. We'll oh, have that dinner that was well, finally, be, yeah, yeah, fifteen years later. Uh, very Cavallari. I was really happy. Did you see it? I did. Okay. Um, I probably should have asked you that before we started podcasting. It's all right. Barry Cavallari, I was I don't know about you. I was excited this episode because Jay was in it a lot more. We yeah. got a lot more Jay Cutler. There was a lot there was a lot more Jay. Um Jay's the star of that show. And uh Jay doesn't typically interact with the other guys on this show. Like usually Kristen's staff and her friends, those guys kind of remain to the side and you always wonder how would Jay interact with these guys? So now you get an opportunity to see, to see Jay interact with Kelly's kind of boyfriend the so, canadian yeah Kristen's friend kelly has a kind of boyfriend uh named the canadian and jay actually kind of hits it off with him he takes to him very much and i think i think the canadian's an outdoorsman like jay yeah, if i'm not mistaken a, he's got a cabin like an hour north of sounds like toronto maybe jay is an example of what we talked about a little bit earlier in this podcast which is he went for so many years of everybody hating him because he was jay cutler like frat boy, sad face, you know, yeah. hound dog look, Jay Cutler. And people love him on this show. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with we hated him for so many years, and now you find out, wow, we should have been liking him this whole time. You see a speck of humanity, which is what happens like when Bill Belichick got up and talked about Aaron Hernandez. Yeah. 
people acted like he was Winston Churchill or something. Like he'd gotten up and delivered the most incredible speech yes. ever. All he did was get up and say, eh, we, we, we probably shouldn't hire murderers anymore. And they're like, oh my gosh. Uh, he just, he just, he really, he was real in that moment. Yeah. He really, did you see? He was just incredible. because He, he set humanized the bar, himself. Set the bar so low for what you should expect from him in terms of like actual humanity. Yeah. Just a shred of it. And and people love it. That's Cutler. That's yeah. Cutler in this show. That's that's how he is. And and, and, and he, like he's a good dad and a good husband. Yeah. Like he's like he's a good person. You pointed that out. I'm glad you pointed that out because I can identify that in myself when I'm watching last night and Kristen Cavallari's waiting to find out if she made the New York Times bestseller list, which is a whole nother. I love thinking about like actual authors sitting at home. <laughs> Is Watch. watching her oh, stress about whether she's on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> like throwing a glass of whiskey <laughs> yeah. at the screen. <laughs> like somebody with like an MBA from the Iowa Writers Oh, workshop. yeah, yeah. Um, but so I'm wondering like, okay, is Jay, I'm going to really analyze Jay's face here and see if he's genuinely happy for her if this comes through. So she gets it. And I saw Jay and is like as close to genuine joy that you can see on Jay Cutler's face. I think you saw it. I think he genuinely felt good for it. Yeah. I like there's still part of me like I know Jay wants her to be successful because he has half of his money in it. And, yeah. But like I, I do wonder I do wonder like in general I, I wonder about football players in general but I'll keep it specific to Jay Cutler since it's this show like if she starts to pick up steam and this business starts to become a big thing yeah. and then he's just kind of sitting there at home with the kids watching it unfold, I wonder how that feels. Because he taking had the- more and more care of the kids. Yeah. Like, she's busy. She's launching this book. She's launching the store. Like, she's she's working a lot. Well, and we got to remember, he was ready to be, like, the lead guy on Fox's NFL coverage right. last year. Yeah. Like, this time last year, Jay Cutler was getting ready to be – on I not probably not the number one team because that's that's uh, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, but I think he was going to be like on the number two team on Fox. He was ready to do that, and then Tannehill tears up his knee, and so he goes back to the Dolphins. I wonder if he just, as it turns out, like he just hated being an announcer. Like if he didn't, if he didn't think it was yeah. for him, if he didn't think he was very good at and it, how much work it ended up? Yeah, might end up the amount of being, work because he does seem to genuinely enjoy sitting around. Yeah, no, he shows no inclination <laughs> of going and getting an actual job. Like, I wonder if he thought in his mind that you like showed up on game day. That's to just, to just that's a distinct possibility, right? Yeah, like that there wasn't. He probably thought it was just one day of work, and it's really not. No, it's like like literally like four days of work. You know, when Tony Romo took that job and decided to retire from the NFL. I had not really thought about this, and I didn't buy it at the time, but somebody made the point that, hey, that's a really big job to get the number one chair yeah. on the broadcast teams, and maybe this is something you got to take when it's available. And at the time, I thought, okay, is it really that hard? But yeah, it is. Like, okay, Tony Romo took that spot. If he didn't take it, somebody else was going to take it, and Monday Night Football wants that, or excuse me, not Monday Night Football, but the uh, CBS. But CBS. Yeah. CBS wants that person to be in there for another decade. So yeah. taking that right then, really in a lot of ways, it did make more sense than trying to squeeze out one or two more years of football. Yeah. And like Jay Cutler, too. Now those opportunities aren't quite there that were there last year. That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, he made this. You're right. The way this year went with him just up and leaving and going to the Dolphins and now just kind of hanging out. May have I don't know if, I don't want to say burned a bridge because there's a lot of broadcasting jobs. There's a there's there are there are more opportunities now just to broadcast than yeah. there have ever been. I don't want to make it sound like there's all these openings, but Jay Cutler's a big enough name where if a network if he was truly 
if they felt he was committed, they would find a spot yeah, for they him, would I think. Yeah, they would figure it out. They would it's figure like, it out. okay, Steve Tasker might have to step aside or something. <laughs> right, for one right. Day. Cutler's a big enough name. CBS actually seems like they've got quite a few guys that would be ripe to be pushed out. Expendable. Just uh, not because they're bad, but because they're not big names. And do like you, being a big name is a, a big part of it. Do you feel like I do with Romo where he's just set the bar like ridiculously high for every player that's going straight from playing into broadcasting? Yeah, because when I watch Witten and Booger McFarland, I found myself comparing the two. Yeah. And there's some things I don't like about Romo, but... The difference between what he does and what those guys were doing is just head and shoulders. He's You learn so much more from a game yeah. watching Romo than you do those guys. And f- to be fair to those guys, you learn more from a game watching Romo than you do a lot of guys right, out there. Right. I didn't feel... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give those guys time. I don't want to be a jerk Yeah, no, about I am it, too. I, that's, it's, it's really hard, too, for Witten to be in the booth and to have somebody that, with a live mic yeah. that might be jumping in when you don't know it. You can't have hand signals or anything. That's a, that's a different dynamic. I think they change that eventually. I, yeah. I would rather they just bring Booger McFarland and sit, sit him in the booth yeah, with them. Like Booger Have McFarland, an offensive player and a defensive player. He's not seeing anything on the field. And if anything, it puts you at a disadvantage. Yeah. It's one thing if you're a sideline reporter, because then you're running around and looking and seeing if people are injured and you're talking to maybe people behind the scenes to figure out what's going on. He's just sitting basically in a bad seat to the game and yeah. try to give his perspective on things. It's it's hard to do. Yeah, I hope they change that. And I'm having a hard time with Tessator on an NFL game as opposed to college. I yeah. love Joe Tessator. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. I'll yeah. get used to it. It just doesn't – like that was the first game, and uh, it's taking some time for me and Joe Tessator in our Monday Night Football relationship to get to know each and other. And I think that part of Booger McFarland too, where I think Booger still kind of broadcasts like a college guy and it'll yeah. take a while. He's speaking in platitudes a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a guy that just the coaches love him because the guys love him hey. and people love him. And look, he steps up in the pocket. It's important to step up in the pocket, you know. Look hey. at there. He stepped up in the pocket. Some would say Gruden became the highest paid guy at the network doing that. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, Gruden, but he also, you could tell that Gruden really studied the other team did. at least. He did. Some of these guys, like, whether you're an ex player or not, I don't really care as much about the technical analysis because a lot of times the more technical you can try to get without yeah. watching it 10 times in a row, you're going to be wrong. Yeah. Um, like, tell me something I didn't know, though. Mm-hmm. Like, show me, show me that you studied and that you know stories about these guys. And they're like, hey, this guy, this guy had an injury two years ago and or, or what have you. I wasn't getting a lot of that. No, that's my biggest thing with any, really, with any show or game or whatever. I just want to, I just want to come away smarter than I was when I started it. Yeah. You know, I want to feel like I'm, when it, with respect to my, my viewer relationship with the analyst, like, tell me something I don't know. Give me information, you know, give, give, point something out to me. One thing I didn't know, and I didn't figure it out until the end of Kristen Cavallari's interview with her, was that Jenny McCarthy had blue hair now and that she has a show on Sirius okay, XM. Okay, so that was her. That was Jenny McCarthy. That was Jenny McCarthy, okay. With blue hair. I was asking Amy, I'm like, is that Jenny McCarthy now? With a talk show on Sirius XM. Yeah, I didn't know she had a talk show. I definitely didn't know she had blue hair. She was... I mean, I'm a bit of a Playboy magazine from the 80s and the 90s aficionado. Yeah. She was top five back she in the day. She still looks, I like her with the blue hair. She's, she looks great. I mean, for her age, she she's looks the, amazing. She's the right kind of crazy, that Jenny McCarthy. She is. She's, I believe she's the daughter of a Chicago cop. Oh, yeah. She's, she's a like big a blue Chicago collar family. Fan. Yeah. 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 All right, buddy. Appreciate right. it, man. We'll yeah. Look forward. Hey, oh, we're going to have to start on um, Last Chance You. Yes. People keep telling both of us. I'm sure a bunch of your listeners are telling you to start. Last chance, you. Do we want to? Do we want to go back to season one and binge watch, oh, or that's do a lot we want to work? Yeah, that no, is. we might just have to jump into season. Three. Okay, cool. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out we'll off, talk the air. off air. Thanks, yep. buddy. You got it. 
Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 